Okay, so I'm here uh, with Michael, who I met on Noster. He's down at the Bitcoin conference in Miami now, and he's agreed to uh, be interviewed to tell his story of who he is and, and how he found Bitcoin. Michael, welcome. Hey, thank you, Roger. Um, happy to be here. Um, yeah, so uh, you can, so like, I'm Michael, um, for using our NIMS or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, you can kind of find me around the internet uh, as on Noster as Moon or uh, Michael, you know, right? So like Michael, uh, Y-O-U-K-N-O-W. Um, and so that's, you know, that's kind of where I am. Uh, some of my little aliases, if you want to look me up on, on uh, some of the socials. Cool. And uh, I guess in case it's interesting to anybody listening, uh, Michael and I met through Noster. Uh, he and I were both posting on some of the Noster solutions that are popping up uh, for blogging, you know, on Habla, and uh, yep. just sort of connected over that and started talking. And then I was, you know, conceptualizing doing this podcast, which we wanted to be more a focus on uh, how people came into Bitcoin and then practical things uh, that you don't get instead of just uh, another podcast that's going to interview the same people over and over and over. It's uh, what, what are, you know, ordinary or, or maybe lesser known people, you know, in Bitcoin doing and practical things, uh, you know, like I'm a miner and, and there's never any practical help of how do you get a large energy site, you know, things like that. Uh, but today we're just going to talk, you know, to you and, and talk about how you found Bitcoin and ended up where you are. And maybe some Noster yeah. spr sprinkled in. We're definitely going to sprinkle in some Noster stuff. <laughs> I, I think we can lead with that a little bit because, you know, as you mentioned, that's how we connected. And it's just been a really cool vibe. Uh, Habla.news is where we're both, you know, posting kind of blog stuff and writing. Um, I know there's a lot of writers in the Bitcoin space or people who have come to the practice of writing through uh, through the lens of Bitcoin and through people that they've met in the space and just like their process into the space. Uh, definitely, if you're not on Noster, look it up and then definitely check out uh, Hobla.news. You're going to see a lot of people posting interesting stuff. And I would just uh, encourage anyone and everyone with the inclination to join the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would uh, echo that. And I would also say, uh, I guess it's worthwhile to mention uh, the way I'm approaching this podcast is um, I don't want to use uh, any of the the legacy podcast stuff that's going to be all podcasting 2.0 uh, I'm not going to encourage people to stream sats uh, you know if you, if you like it you could do a boostagram uh, you could boost the note uh, but the way I'm setting this up is 
uh, for this episode. You know, uh, others have provided the theme music, you know, for the show. Others have provided the art. And we're talking to Michael today. So any sats that come in related to this episode uh, are going to be split, you know, between the guest and then the others uh, who have helped, you know, like so a true uh, value for value. I think this, you know, personally, the sat streaming is pretty cool, but I think it requires a lot of actions from the user to set it up. And and uh, it's sort of almost painful in a way when you, you know, it, it, I think it's a bit distracting sometimes when you're listening to something and you know how many sats are like flying out the door. Um, so I don't want feel, you know, people to feel uh, pressured to do that. Um, you know, I'm fortunate that I'm in a position where I don't uh, necessarily need this to earn, uh, you know, an income to continue it. You know, it'd be great if it at least paid for the cost, uh, but it's not necessary right now. It's more about just, you know, putting something out into the community. Um, so that's enough about, about me, <laughs> you know, but I, I know you share my sentiments on that and the, the way something like Absolutely. this should be done and where this is going. So I, I thought that's a good yeah, I'm with it. All right, let's let's get into it. Uh, I don't know, you know, I will say that this is my first podcast, so, you know, excuse any weird or strange things that I do that are not like podcasting whatever, uh, <laughs> but we're all learning here, so. Hey, it's, it's, yeah. my, it's my first uh, one, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so let's, uh, let's dive into it. I'll let you, I don't know, open with something, and then I'll kind of take it from there. Okay. Yeah, so uh, I, I've heard part of your story of um, how you found Bitcoin. Why don't you just uh, kind of give people uh, whatever version of that story you feel comfortable sharing in, in the time we have here? Yeah, um, so, you know, the whole Bitcoin origin story is honestly one of the most um, interesting aspects of the Bitcoin community that I've found. And it's... Um, it's, it's an aspect that I have kind of been compelled to start exploring myself. And so, you know, you might have seen on Hobla some of the stuff I'm writing is is getting into a little bit of that, you know, over time as I'm able to publish stuff. Um, but it's just, it's such a, um, before I even get into my story, like, I think that even where we are, you know, where Bitcoin is, um, 14 or so years on, um, in order to, like, to, to be at a point where you really get it, like, or even halfway get it, I feel like you've had to go down such a bizarre funnel of like worldview and like avoiding all the mistakes or like, you know, touching the hot stove, getting burned, but then for whatever reason coming back, right? Like there's a lot of that. We, we've all make mistakes and it like deters us for a while and then we come back. But like, what are, you know, the question that, that fascinates me isn't so much like, you know, why are we Bitcoiners, but like, why did we become Bitcoiners when and how we did? What what allowed us to see the things we see today? And then I think having that understanding helps us to, to better engage more critically with, you know, are the things that we're seeing real, or, right? Or, or what of the things that we're seeing of? Uh, <laughs> Are real and whatever it is sometimes just like noise either um, either from a place of like euphoria things that we would like to be true in the Bitcoin space that perhaps aren't or a place of fear things that like we um, you know enemies and shadows that we see that maybe there maybe nest you know may not necessarily be there we just kind of think they should be 
Um, and, and so I think the, the process of, of self-discovery um, is extremely important uh, for, for all of us. Cause I think something, um, I think something truly singular is happening here. And, you know, we, we talk about it in Bitcoin. It's this, you know, we see a, a transition, like a, a, it's a transformational event, a once or twice in a civilization transition of a base layer money. But this is also happening on like an exponential digital standard. So there's, and that's a whole, you know, thing to unpack. And there's others who, who dive into that, you know, I can, play around and give my thoughts there, but like something, you know, something singular and, and spectacular and transformational and unique is happening here. And I think the key to navigating that, um, in many ways is, is your own self-discovery because that's the, you know, as we think about all the, the sovereignty motifs in the Bitcoin space, right. And it kind of flows forward from the individual. Well, that self-discovery is, is where we're going to have to you know, and, and, and management of, of self, knowledge of self, um, you know, living with ethics, all of the things that flow from that, that, that's what builds up, you know, the family and then the community and then the society, we would hope or assume on this new standard. Um, but and so that's like, that's a significant amount of work. And one of the things that brings me joy is that I just see so many people in the Bitcoin space, one way or the other, um, engaging with that work, right? Whether they're writing about it or promoting it outwardly is one thing, but when you have private conversations with people, it kind of always comes up. Um, and so to turn to, you know, my specific story, the, um, <laughs> the, the, the first answer is, um, I, I found myself living in China. Um, so I found myself living in China and I had moved there with a job um, with you know, a very well-positioned consulting firm. Um, and when you go over, this this happened to be like I was on a local contract, so I'm getting paid in RMB into a Chinese bank account. But having just moved, uh, I find myself in a situation where I still have certain bills and obligations in the United States in a dwindling, you know, fast drying up USD bank account. And now this kind of growing and expanding RMB bank account uh, in China. And so I go to try to discover, you know, what is the process for transferring money back to myself um, from my, from a Chinese account to a U.S. account. And it is, it, I mean, it is a labyrinth, right? It, it's, it's just this, it's such an absurd thing. It requires several trips to this like government tax office. It requires one or two written letters from your employer. And the employer has to be like, you know, appropriately appointed with, you know, the appropriate kind of certificates or, or government kind of not, not so much connections, but like, you know, certifications and, and reputation. And then like somebody at some point, you know, has to like go with you to the bank and like you sign all these things. And there's, it's like two months of lead time to move like any money out of a Chinese bank account to yourself. This is money you've worked for. You've already paid taxes on everything. Um, and I just realized like, wow, that in like in the absence of my employer doing this process for me, right. Which event, like, which they were not, um, like this is just not going to be a workable solution. I'm eventually going to get into some really bad jam if this is the way this all plays out. So I'm sitting here, this, this is, uh, I think 
this is early 2017. So um, your spring of 2017, I'm sitting here uh, and I start researching, you know, what are the best ways to, to send money back to myself? Uh, and I kind of, I come to Bitcoin. And at this point, all of the noise um, for like the ICO ramp hadn't really taken off yet. So when you were looking right at this early moment in 2017, you saw a lot of Bitcoin content, you saw a little bit of Ethereum content, and there wasn't this explosion of, of ICO stuff yet. But that was coming like literally in a matter of like days or weeks, right? But I hit this window where I actually got, even though there, there was very little structure on, on how to learn this, nothing like, you know, I think the Bitcoin, the Bitcoin standard may or may not have been out by that time, but like it wasn't being promoted. Like there wasn't all this like, you know, swan Bitcoin stuff and all these tools out here to help you get to Bitcoin and all these people trying to tell you about it. Um, it was just a bunch of, you know, in, in my case, a bunch of lost boys in, <laughs> in Shanghai trying <laughs> to figure out some, you know, cool tech thing. Uh, that, that people were telling us was one thing or another. But, you know, initially I hit this window where I, I get a little bit of signal about Bitcoin. I'm like, okay, I figure out how to use it to get money back to myself. I'm like, this is great. And what's so funny about this is like, this is one of the, I think one of the most, at least in, in, in like the United States and in the West, this is one of the most, most overlooked core use cases of Bitcoin. And I like smack head first into it. Like, how do I actually transfer money to myself around like predatory financial walls that are d designed to like impede my ability to do so to some extent or another? And I, I like smack head first into this. And yet somehow I don't see it. Right. I use it for what it is. I feel like, OK, this is great. This is like a cool little fix. But there is no light bulb. There is no insight that like oh, like, this is truly permissionless. No one can stop this. Oh, like, you know, what are government, it, it's going to erode uh, the power of governments and institutions that are trying to ring fence people into predatory financial enclosures. Like, oh, it's going to change potentially the nature of governance in society. There's none of that, right? And I, and I actually think it would have been, like, pretty bizarre, uh, even after the experience I've had now, if if in that moment that kind of light bulb and went off right so i don't like i don't begrudge anything like oh i wish i had gotten earlier because in my writings i kind of explore that and, and the further you go back into the timeline like the earlier you go back where you start thinking oh man i wish i had gotten bitcoin then like each each step you take back it's not like a it's not like a straight line relationship between the amount of risk and the amount of like the potential for exchange risk, user error, all of these things. Like the further you go back in time, like it's an exponential relationship. So like most of the people, if you could go back to like, oh, I wish I could go back to 2012 and buy Bitcoin. Like you'd go back and do that and you would have messed it up like a thousand times over. Yeah, it's like, uh, like sitting in this pool with despair. Like, <laughs> like in Back to the Future when Marty gets the, the sports almanac. It's like I I can't yeah. I can't lose, <laughs> and he like yeah. literally literally destroys his reality because uh, not ready to wield that information you know in a way. And yeah. there's there's unpredictable second and and third order effects third to order it. Yeah. And uh, I know you know this, but 
for benefit of everyone else who doesn't know know me because um, I, I'm the guy who's never used my real name before. I've never been to a conference. I've never been to a meetup. I've met a lot of Bitcoiners, but I've never been you know to a Bitcoin meetup. Um, you know, I, I first found out about this in 2013, uh, actually researched mining, went, went pretty far down the hole and concluded that it was too expensive and not worth it, you know, because I didn't realize what Bitcoin was. Um, but looking back, I, I'm also grateful because I found it in a window as well where Ethereum uh, wasn't really known yet. Like nobody was really talking about that. None of that was happening. And if I would have found out about Ethereum then, I probably would have looked and said, oh, you know, the, this is cheaper to mine. You know, this is the way to go. And then I would have lost um, a lot of time, you know, messing with that. Uh, what is that expression you you uh, first understand or you, you get Bitcoin at the price that you deserve, <laughs> you know, yeah, and that sa it sounds really cruel, <laughs> uh, but it's true, you know, and people are always saying, uh, gosh, you know, I'm late or I wish I would have found out about it, uh, you know, sooner. But like you weren't ready then, you know, whenever you dismissed it, you, you weren't ready to see it. The analogy that I use kind of jokingly with myself and my friends is that um, uh, Bitcoin passes you several times, perhaps, as a as an incredibly garish and annoying party boat. <laughs> and, and then finally, Bitcoin passes you as a lifeboat. Right? Oh, like, that's I like that. That's a good one. It's just like it circles you as like as like a booze cruise until <laughs> you're just completely exhausted and give up and then all of a sudden they're like okay here's like a life raft we're sitting out a boat to get you but the whole time when you still got energy everyone on the boats is like hey swim to the boat climb up the ladder like we got more space and just you know <laughs> treading water like no i don't want to no <laughs> like so all right so i think i i guess something about your story you know so um Obviously, there are people who work abroad, uh, but I, I would say, at least in the United States, that's not a common experience. Uh, yeah. I've talked to a lot of people from other countries, uh, particularly you know countries in like like South America, and they understand the use case immediately. You know the use case that you bumped into, because they deal with this all the time. They have unreliable local currencies. They, in some cases, have corrupt governments that are trying to stop them from transacting. Many times there might be a family member in the United States who's working and they need to send money home, you know, to support their family. And then uh, they're encountering that predatory pricing, you know, from like the Western unions of the world and the, the moneygrams and, and things like that and the ways that this has traditionally been done. Uh, but you coming from that Western perspective, you know, there you are in China and it's frustrating to you and you're identifying, you know, I don't want to spend this extra money that I know is just a bunch of, of middlemen who are essentially stealing from me. And yet, if you hadn't figured that out, you would have been financially okay. And you know, ah, I can go back to the United States when this contract is done. Or if I don't like this, you know, I can probably get out of it. You know, you have that built in uh, comfort and safety net that, that I think those in the, the West, you know, you, even if you're not well off in the West, you're still uh, much better off than literally most of the planet, you know? And it's interesting that you could come clo that close to it and use it for its utility, uh, but then not really see it at that time. Well, so I, I think that, that like, that's one of the keys, right? Like, because for people in the West, particularly people who are 
um, you know, relatively or, or quite frankly, objectively well situated. Um, it's it's just it's this is a very hard thing to see um, because it like it fly you, you are, you know, um, right. And I'll, you know, I'll just say it right off the bat. Right. Like I'm African-American. So I come from a, an African-American tradition where there's there's kind of like a cultural understanding of distrust of of the government and large institutions and like people saying they're coming to help you when they're not coming to help you. But then on the other hand, through the entire experience of my education and the successes that I was having in the corporate world, I had been conditioned into a counter worldview where these governments and all these institutions are fundamentally here to help you and to like wrap you in this bubble wrap to make the world more like efficient and comfortable for you. And it's not until you know, I run into the rough edges of these two systems, the American and the Chinese system, that I start to see, I start to see the disconnect that, you know, many people in the world um, live under every day. And it would, you know, it would take a, you know, kind of calamitous, inconceivable global circumstances for me to really get it, right? Because what happened was, I, I encountered this use case in early 2007, and then, so, sorry, 2017. And then <laughs> yes. All, yeah. I, you know, I, I, that's like a mistake that I've made when I'm quoting years and I'm like, oh my God, 2017. Well, you know, um, every, every year you're in Bitcoin is like 10 years in the regular timeline. <laughs> like right? I literally have uh, more gray hair than when I started. It's ridiculous. Well, I think, I think I've maybe been in the verse. I think I'm a reverse. I'm, I was... I was uh, shaving my head bald when I got into it, and I, I maybe have figured out how to like get a, a tiny bit of edge of more hair. <laughs> that's I think that's just a maybe that's something I've made up in my mind, right? But you know, Bitcoin fixes this. Yes. Um, <laughs> so so like I, I hit this use case, but then literally right like a couple weeks later, all the ICO buzz starts out starts up and so i'm seeing all this all this froth all this haze shanghai i would say was you know if not the global epicenter of shit coronary it was <laughs> like it was a a regional peak right it, i mean this was these this was like the heady days of of shitcoin hysteria mania and so that's what i did right and you know you know, be me, right? Like stranger in a strange land, <laughs> black guy in China, you know, my Mandarin wasn't as good as it would be in the future. I'm searching for Western friends. Um, and, and this whole crypto space kind of had a lot of, of Westerners uh, looking to essentially like, you know, grift off of this space or kind of like well-meaning, um, you know, well, well-meaning, uh, tech native aspirants who you know thought they had caught on to a novel idea and were trying to push forward a, a startup or a concept uh, but like that was this whole thing and i've i you know i've written about that on, on hobla one of my one of my pieces i've got a series called journey into bitcoin where i'm going through a lot of the periods that i'll you know that i'll, I'll speak to here and some of it's published some of it's not yet but like you know as not to spend a bunch of time talking about <laughs> about shitcoining, I, I wrote a segment on that shitcoining in Shanghai, <laughs> and you know, as you can imagine, 
you just you just collapse into the dying star of of you know the vortex that is shit coinery. You do all of the things, you make all of the mistakes, like you come away being like this is ridiculous. Um, and I and I essentially um, stepped away from the space, right? Out of the out of the 2017 bull run and then the collapse, right? I, I see I get into a bunch of, of shit coins. I watch the valuation like, you know, 20, 30 X in some cases. Greed kicks in where I'm like, oh my God, it's got a hundred X. I'm gonna be like a bajillionaire. Everyone's gonna be a bajillionaire. <laughs> yes. This is we're all gonna like this this is crazy, oh my god. Right. And then of course, right, it starts to it starts to correct. Uh, you're like, you know, okay, well maybe I'm gonna sell. And then it, you get that bull trap and you're like, no, no, it's all coming back. And yeah. then you just fall off the cliff, right? Then it's just the parabolic drop. And and then, you know, it, it drops to the bottom and you hold it. That's what I did. I held it. I held it for a good year-ish or so right into because, you know, we come down from all of this in 2018. So we get to some point in 2019 and it was, I mean, I capitulated at, at the bottom. Right. Um, I am one of those Bitcoiners who has that experience that like to date, I have never had more Bitcoin than like the first time I bought it, perhaps even the first purchase of Bitcoin that I made. And then it's just it's only been downhill from there. (laughs) Yeah, it's a it's a common story that you hear. Um, I was lucky. I, I did end up mining Ethereum uh, and I, I came back to Bitcoin around 2017 and uh, Ethereum was available and I understood, you know, GPU servers and networks and hardware. And I was like, this is going to be easy. And I was mining Bitcoin. And uh, but I am fortunate I was able to uh, avoid that. I was seeking out podcasts. I was listening uh, to shitcoin podcast. And somehow or another, I found um, Anthony Pompliano's podcast, which used to be called Off the Chain. And uh, I was like two or three episodes into it, and he had Marty Bent on. And uh, not like his typical guest, you know. And Marty was just like pretty Bitcoin focused. And, and I could tell, you know, never never heard the guy before, but it, just the way he was speaking to Pomp, I could tell he was like holding back a little bit. And then, of course, he talked about his podcast, I, you know, I Have Tales from the Crypt, you know. And uh, as soon as I listened to the first episode of that, and they're just basically like, it's Bitcoin only, everything else is shit. Like, stop doing it, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, okay, like, this is, I'm not heard this point of view, you know? So uh, I'll skip over the boring bits, but I was sitting on a lot of Ethereum, and, and because I found Marty Bent, I ended up converting all of that to Bitcoin. And kind of becoming Bitcoin only and focused on Bitcoin mining uh, because that was my focus. I was trying to mine. Um, so I was lucky. Um, I, it really was luck. I, I'd like to say it was because I was smart, uh, but it was total, total luck. It's all luck. All of this <laughs> is luck. And anybody who says otherwise is lying. Like, and that's, well, it's, it's, it's luck, but it's also like something was happening in or around our lives to make us ready to accept this luck. Like, you know, to get to the point where we were willing to get onto that party boat. Yeah. Um, and that's like, that's, that's what I'm, I'm really interested in, um, in exploring. Right. Like, but yeah, like we, I don't, you know, the reason that I think the reason that we connected is because 
you know, we're both kind of writing our stories and I, I write to just as like a, a cathartic process myself to just try to figure all this out. Cause like no one, I, I feel like no one really has the answers, but the only, like the, we, we get to a better understanding of at least the, the shape of the answers. If we start adding all of our narratives around it and we start learning from each other and kind of understanding each other because we're all coming from like pretty radically different places. Yeah. When, uh, so. I, t- I talk about this with mining a lot and, uh, uh, if you're going to to come at Bitcoin mining, um, you can come at it, you know, from a technology perspective, which which was how I found it. You know, okay, I know how to uh, build computers, I know how to run servers, I know how to do networking, I can figure this out. You know, it's just a server, right? You know, and then you can come to it from uh, like a financial kind of perspective, like okay, so. I want to acquire Bitcoin, I can buy it, or these machines can manufacture it. Uh, it looks like if you have the machine, you can get it cheaper, if you can get access to capital and, and figure out how to do it. And if you don't know how to do that, you, you can find somebody who does and, and sort of hire them or bring them into your team. And then there's the energy perspective of, you know, uh, I, I have an energy source. Uh, it's, uh, I don't have a way to bring it to market. I can put these machines here and they can consume the energy and they can turn it into value. And having done this for a few years now, I, I think it's easiest to understand for the energy guy, uh, particularly if the energy guy owns the stranded asset and they've been trying to sell it, uh, natural gas probably being the best example, um, which is how I ended up. I wrote about this, but doing a project at an oil well out in Wyoming, which was one of the coolest things I've ever done and also a, a really humbling experience of how much you can not know about something and think you have it all figured out. But the prime example is that well, uh, it was owned by a company from Texas and they were the only Texas company in that area. All the Wyoming operators didn't like them. The closest uh, gas pipeline to them was three miles away and it was going to cost around $3 million to tap into that pipeline. And even if they wanted to spend that money, which really didn't make a lot of sense for them, the uh, other landowners and the other operators made it impossible for them to connect to it. Then the state of Wyoming came and said, well, you know, you're flaring too much gas and you have to reduce that or you have to put it to a beneficial use or you have to put it into a pipeline. So they came to look for Bitcoin miners, not because they thought it was a great idea, but because it was a way to get rid of their gas, you know, (laughs) and they, they were almost giving it to us, you know. Uh, because for them, you know, the, the oil and the gas comes up together. They want the oil. The gas is a nuisance to them. Even if you can sell it, you don't, you don't make nearly as much money as you do, uh, you know, from the oil. Yeah. I mean, I think the, um, I think the, so when we talked about this previously, there was one other pillar, right? So like from your perspective, coming, coming at it from the energy side, and like you seeing the energy guys who get this, I think in my experience, what I've seen, I've people, I've seen people come in more from like the ideological or political door. And I mean that like across the spectrum, right? Because that's actually, that's actually how I feel like I came into it. Because as much as I experienced this, you know, discrete use case in 2017, I do all of the, the shit coining. Um, I, I've begun to think of, of Bitcoining 
and like really understanding Bitcoin is a bit like an actual like like your four year degree because a lot of people will say that they're like class of 2017, which is when they first you know it got exposure to Bitcoin. Yes. But really, like that's that was your freshman year. Your class of 2021. <laughs> and that's, that's, yeah. And that's like really that's literally what I that's like when I think about my level of understanding. And, you know, trying to objectively assess, like, relative competence. I don't think I'd, I, I had anything to speak for until, like, 2021. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I got exposure to it in 2017, but I didn't really graduate. I didn't really get it until 2021. And what brought me to that was everything that happened around the pandemic, Um and so I was I was living in China when the pandemic started, and I think luckily for me I had, um, you know I I had I had been living most of my adult life with a practice of foresight, um, and I think that comes in large part from my upbringing, um, you know, the child of uh, automotive operations managers and. You know, there was a lot of international stuff that they were doing and we had to, you know, you go into certain places because there's a factory and, you know, a certain country, a certain place. You have to be thinking ahead. You have to have security protocols. You have to, you know, call each other at certain times and, and have standards for all these things. And so there, there was some weird, you know, in, in my, you know, when I talked to like how other people were, were brought up, there were there were some like weird frameworks and habits of mind that were impressed upon me fairly fairly early but i i kind of they just became like a second nature that i applied to my life and so the whole time i lived in china you know i saw it as a great opportunity to go there but i always thought that there was recognizing the united states and china for what they are and for you know what history tells us about the potential nature of great power competition i always had to at least be thinking about potential exits. And so one of my things was I always wanted to be kind of ready uh, to leave the country on like six hours notice. If something like, uh, you know, if something that urgent actually compelled me to do so. But then in addition to that, I figured anything that would compel me or people like me to leave in such a hurry, whatever it is, that's that's like disrupting China so much, it's going to disrupt the United States at least, if not, it, like at least as much, if not potentially even more. And so from there, I took that and I said, you know, where are places that you can sit that you're getting a mixture of good infrastructure, relatively stable economy and politics, fairly low cost of living, um, you know, good commercial and agricultural supply, decent weather, I think is also a plus. Um, and that's, you know, that's essentially your, your range of Southeast Asia. And so when the pandemic happened, um, and so I had, I had always kind of thought through a lot of these things. I couldn't have thought through the pandemic as it, as it happened necessarily, but I was able to think through like, what if there was some sort of outbreak like SARS? What if, you know, uh, U.S. and Chinese naval ships collide in the Strait of Taiwan. What if, you know, X, Y, Z thing happens? You might want to clear out. So when they shut down Wuhan and I saw, 
that this was just going to cascade out from there. Um, I was living in Shenzhen in southern China, and this was right around – this was actually right at Chinese New Year. Um, and so I, I left. I went to Thailand. And sidebar, so sidebar here, you know, going back to the year 2020, uh, and I think most people kind of miss this timeline. And this is like my own like kind of – I think this was an interesting thing to think about. Um, the major city shutdowns didn't happen until after essentially like the vast majority, the 95.5 of people in China would have traveled home back to their hometowns for Chinese New Year. So Chinese New Year is like the largest migration, human migration of people in the world or one of them happening internally in China. And what happens is most of, you know, most of the young people are living in these mega cities. Um, I've, you know, I've lived in Beijing. I've lived in Shanghai. I, I had these like very well-educated, well-appointed Chinese friends. I remember I was at someone's house. I opened the fridge. There's nothing in it. And I say like, you know, what, well, what, like, what do you do if the power goes out in Beijing? And they looked at me and said, the power cannot go out in Beijing. The government <laughs> won't allow it. But that, like, that was, that was a point of, of real illumination. Like that kind of frightened me. I was like, I need to beef up my considerations of like, what happens when the government, not just the Chinese government, but any of these governments start encountering things that, that kind of break them, things that they can't break to the extent that it, it threatens to break them. Um, and that's, that can be a scary thought for people. Right. But when you, when you, when you look at the timeline of like the concept of lockdowns in China, it happened, it, it rolled out in mass. It was like the day or two after most of the people had traveled because what everyone does is they go back to their hometown where you have people in their sixties and seventies and eighties. And these are people who remember things like the cultural revolution. And they have seen such a scope of technological advancement, but they still have this deep-seated, hungry memory, right? From the they, like, they remember what it was where there was like true food and, and medicine and infrastructure scarcity and lawlessness and all of these things. So you go home, and they've got the you know your brand new top of the line, uh, you know Japanese company refrigerator, the one with like all the crazy doors and stuff, and they've packed it with food. So they're sitting on like two or three months of food that everyone just you just get to like gluttonously gluttonously eat in this celebration over like two weeks but you get everybody home into that situation and then you shut the cities down and then you turn off all the all the trains and you turn off everything and that was like that was the best situation i think they could have achieved not for the world but for them because if you had done all of that while you know, those millions and millions of people were sitting in all the mega cities, the, the Shenzhen, Shanghai's, Beijing's of the world. Like I, you know, if somebody said that those cities were just on a, on a good day sitting on, you know, eight hours of supply, I'd believe it. Right. Like it, it would have been pandemonium. Yeah. And something, so, you know, something <laughs> you said there uh, talking about the older people, uh, that were home and and what they had in their collective memory, you know, say that person is in their 80s or, or perhaps even their 90s. Um, there's this um, this idea or this this theory, um, you know, of the fourth turning, uh, which I can't I can't remember if we talked about this, but 
I don't, I never know if I say his name right. Brandon Keatum, uh, who wrote, uh, Bitcoin is mycelium of money. Uh, he also wrote Bitcoin in the fourth turning, uh, which was the first time I was introduced, uh, to the concept of the fourth turning. And then I went down the rabbit hole. I like read books and, and everything else. Mm -hmm. But, but the reason a, a turning, uh, or a season is another way to look at it. The, the reason the whole process is about 80 years is that is the average span of a long human lifetime. You know, not everyone lives long up, that long, of course, but, you know, so like now there, there isn't anyone living on earth or in America who was around when the civil war was happening. So, you know, we have writings and, you know, we have history books and we have all these things, but you can't go in and talk to somebody and have them tell you what it was like or what that was experience was like. So we sort of forget, even though we have written histories and, yeah. and we have all this technology, we have videos, but when you experience something and you have that uh, emotional connection to whatever that event was, it drives it home. And, you know, my parents were a little older when they had me and they uh, were children uh, during the Great Depression and their parents uh, suffered immensely, you know, and they, and they didn't throw anything away. Like waste was just not something that you did. And they, they were brought up that way. And, you know, at me as a kid living in the 80s and 90s, you know, I'm in my 40s now. I just thought it was so ridiculous because the disposable society, you know, had already, you know, taken root. But I always uh, remembered that. And as I got older, I realized, you know, kind of like you did, that you needed an escape hatch. It's like, this is actually a good way to be, you know, uh, attribute of, of wealth and success used to be thrift, you know, like I, I'm not wasting money, therefore I have more wealth. I have more accumulated wealth and purchasing power because I'm not buying things that I don't really need or I'm not going to use and, and I'm not wasting money on something that's maybe a good brand, but it doesn't have any, you know, utility. I'm not just buying status symbols, you know, because I can but that that turning concept, particularly during the the pandemic and and your particular set of circumstances in China, I think is really interesting. You know, um, I think those older people, you know, looking at, at what has happened before and then looking at the actions of the government, that eighty or ninety year old person is going to view that a lot differently, you know, than a twenty year old person who's never known anything but but more restriction. And, and even in America, you know, like. People were telling me, well, they, they can't actually, you know, lock us down, you know, and I was, I was living in the Midwest. I was in Indiana at the time and, and not a lot happened, you know, uh, but Missouri, where I am now, for example, by comparison, Missouri essentially did nothing and Indiana did what I would classify as a soft lockdown, you know, but, but it was a lockdown, you know, and certain states didn't do anything at all, you know, here in the U.S. So I, I think that perspective of, um, how old you are, or if you were influenced uh, by somebody who is older, and then that transfers onto you a little bit, you know, uh, for that fourth turning theory is pretty interesting. Well, so what, and, and, and so that, yeah. And so stepping away from the sidebar, I just, and, and the reason I tell that story is because it's kind of like, I feel an insight that it's kind of overlooked that it's like, I think it's we've all kind of established that like COVID was probably out there well before it, it really was like promoted that it was out there in the world. Sure. But I think the timeline in China is very interesting because it's like had it had the shutdown and all of these things happened any any earlier, I actually think it would have been like a legitimate systematic risk over there. Um, 
and and so like but you know stepping away from that sidebar i i see this stuff rolling down the hill and i'm like this is coming for all of us if we stay in china so i'm gonna take a step out so i go i go to to southeast asia have a phenomenal time there um me and my wife like all these wonderful things uh never really experienced lockdown that's a whole other story. Like there were kind of lockdowns, but we were just always a couple days ahead of them because <laughs> you know we someone would give us a call and tell us something about the you know the province that we were in or the island that that we were on, and we just kind of like navigated around it. Um, you know, I've got all these pictures and stuff that like I was never really able to post because it would just been like it would have been offensive and obscene to anyone and everyone that I knew in both China or the United States. I mean, it was like, you know, but I, I, I in many ways felt like this was a choice. Like a lot of the people that I knew, like Americans, at least like living in China, they like, they could have done the same thing. And there was a lot of, and there was two guys that I convinced to, to come along with me over, uh, you know, after I had been, been out there for a couple weeks and they had the same, you know, amazing experience. They're still out there. They never really went back um, to China, and they, they. But there was a lot of resistance to that at first. It's like again, we bump up against against these singular experiences, and everyone wants to say like, no, we're not living through something singular. And when the pandemic was happening, that was this whole narrative. Like all of the all of the HR people at the company in February of 2020 saying, oh, we're all going to be back in the office in March or April, and I'm telling them, no, this is a three to five year global travel disruption and they're you know everyone that i said that to looked at me like i was an absolute crazy person (laughs) and having having a bit of of you know retrospect as the situation is cooled and time has passed i even have to acknowledge myself that like i probably did sound like a total crazy person right but i like i was right and it wasn't just like right out of guesswork it was right out of again what I call foresight, which involves a lot of observation, a lot of of logic, even empathy. When you're thinking about what are governments and people going to do, even if the even if the the decision that they make is the wrong one, it's going to seem like the most logical one for them. And but if you can recognize that it's not really a good decision, well then you start taking actions to position yourself around it, even if you can't change what people are going to do or, or the, the decisions that governments and institutions are going to feel like they're locked into. And I think that's that, that like that kind of experience in and of itself is, is actually kind of a, a, a key element of, of Bitcoining in a lot of ways, because that's what a lot of us are doing, right? This is like an insight that I'm having right now, just talking about this. Um, yeah. And, but, but, you know, I'm, I'm out in Southeast Asia for a while. Then the then the company I'm with is like, you got to go back to China, you got to or go back to the United States. Blah blah blah, visa stuff, taxes, all this. And so I opt to go to to the U.S. because I just wasn't going back to China. But I get to the U.S. It's late 2020. I'm looking on the news. I'm seeing all the crazy stuff we're doing in various places. I'm seeing all this like absurd conflict between people. That was like universally stupid on on all sides like of this like the, just the whole thing and and then I'm seeing things like 
you know, there were there were things that people really needed when you see the solution as the only solution that the government can provide, which is printing more money. So like when they when they started handing out money to people, yes, there were people who needed that money. Okay, let's let's say that. But then at the same time, like and they're doing like rent forgiveness. But at the same time, the the people who have who are, who own these properties now some of them are like predatory rent seekers, right? But then some of them are also like you know African Americans, Latinos, legitimate middle class families, military families that have leaned into the concept of real estate as as the most surefire way to build wealth in America because that's what you're told. And then we go into this period where rents are suspended, but mortgages are not, right? And then at the same time, we're doing these PPP loans. And I live in a community where I actually saw, like, I actually saw this concept that, that people talk about, but I don't think, you know, people necessarily saw it. I saw people who had, you know, LLCs that were companies only in, like, they're, like, only in, in the most imaginary sense that were just given literally orders of magnitude more than you know an aunt or uncle or cousin of mine who really could have used a lot more right and this is this is just me speaking from the perspective of like you know we could say something like all money printing is bad but some money printing is is worse than others or we could say like if this is the paradigm that we're living on even within it right we should call out these distortions and so I see all of these things happen. And then and then thirdly, in parallel to this, I'm in the reverse situation of, of that I was when I moved to China. So now I'm back in the United States and I got all I'm, I'm picking up these new bills in the U.S., but most of my money is denominated in RMB. And so now I got to do I come back to Bitcoin because I'm doing the reverse transfer Right. And so and at that period, it's really interesting because I, you know, I leveraged Bitcoin to get my money back into into USD. And then I went straight to the stock market. OK, I didn't like hold it in Bitcoin. I go straight to the stock market because I'm hearing that this is where all the froth is. This is where the buzz is. And then like the clubhouse moment happens. I get on clubhouse and I start out with the stock market rooms and I'm, you know, and I'm building this stock portfolio I've now got a flow of U.S. dollars. Everything's kind of stabilized. I'm building up my my stock holdings, but like I slowly somehow get you know the slow creep of Bitcoiners on that social media app in its heyday, right? They would come into the stock market rooms and they would drop these you know really good points. I just like slowly get pulled into into this space, into these rooms, and then I listen for a long time. And then I start to speak, and then and then I like become like one of them in air quotes, right? <laughs> uh, and and that's like that's ultimately what led me to this moment in like the spring of 2021, where I like whatever shit coins I had still like accumulated from from the past. And actually, when I got my money, when I when I got my money out from China, even in 2020. Along with the stock market, I also started shitcoining again. I just didn't get it, right? And so it wasn't until I, I kind of fall into this funnel where I could compare what are we talking about in these stock market rooms or in these real estate rooms, and then what are we talking about in the Bitcoin rooms? 
and in the Bitcoin rooms, people are making the points that I've had, but perhaps maybe not articulated, or that I've had, but I've had no one to talk to. Like, I've had no one to talk with about, right? Like, you know, we're suspending rents, but not mortgages. We're, we're printing all this money. We're, we're just, like, moving debt shares around, right? We're giving people money who don't need it. Like, why are we able to even do any of these things? And, you know, coming from a, a background of, like, progressive politics, um, I, I remember always thinking, like, there was – there's this – motif on the left that like in order to solve a lot of these social problems you have to give people money and i believed that for a long time but what i think even many of today's liberals are saying because i think this was what i was saying without realizing it it's not so much that you have to give people money you have to give people the ability to save and store value yeah that's and what what is yeah it's like what's changed my thinking here is that I've taken a step back and says said like what happens to progressive values if you can no longer redistribute money you can no longer steal through the process of redistribution whether you're calling it stealing or not it's going to feel that way to many people in this society and even many of the people you are proposing to help so how do you achieve your objectives and one of the best way to achieve your objectives is giving the people giving people the ability to store their value in a way that can't be grifted away from them by anyone. And like when I had that realization, like that resonated for me where I was politically at the time, that resonated for me as an African American, that resonated for me as a traveler who had been fortunate enough to see many parts of the world and to see you know, to at least get an inkling of some of the challenges that people in other places had faced. And and it like, you know, the stars just kind of all aligned there. And, and since then, I, I've been locked in. And, you know, I've been exploring this topic even deeper. So, you know, looking at my education experience, professional experience, religious experiences, my childhood upbringing, the places I've traveled, the people I've met, the things I've done, and thinking about how many of those things prepared me to have this realization when I did, and then how many of those same functions have been transformed almost universally for the better now that I'm like kind of on the other side of this funnel of understanding. Yeah, it is incredible, and that, and this is – you know, if, if anyone listening, if you read uh, Michael's writings, this is the tip of the iceberg, you know, as far as his experience. Uh, but I think you're right. I think everyone has a different story uh, of how they found Bitcoin and and when they realized what it was and realized, you know, they should only focus on that if they were, you know, dealing with, with other things. Um, but it all kind of, everyone you talk to, no matter what their story is, there's always these these factors that go way into that person's past uh, that enabled them to see it when the conditions were correct, you know. And you talk to people who uh, maybe just found out about it a year ago, or you know, you talk to people who found out about it, you know, years ago and and still don't get it, you know. Like I uh, I won't name the person, but I I have a close friend um, who in 2017 when I was getting really interested in this, I just ended up talking to him. 
and he bought uh, I can't remember how many, but he, but he bought several Bitcoin, and uh, you know held it for a long time. I hadn't talked to him, and he sold it uh, during the last run up. I think he sold uh, almost perfectly sold the absolute top, and you know he he uh, I think he paid a house off that he had. You know he bought bought a car and some other things. And um, he was really excited about it, and he called to thank me, you know, for introducing him to it. And, you know, of course, I was, I was very disappointed and uh, told him he should have held on to it. And he's like, oh, well, you, you can't possibly think it's going to go back up higher than that again. And I'm like, yeah, I, I think it will, actually. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's going to go way higher than that. And, uh, and, you know, he's a smart guy. I'm not saying anything about, about him as a person, um, but he wasn't ready to see it you know, for whatever reason, you know, even with somebody like me, you know, if we'd been in more regular communication, maybe I could have changed his thinking on it. I don't know. But, you know, you, you just don't get it until you get it. And you have to have whatever your particular set of circumstances is uh, to really, truly have that aha moment. And, and even when I realized I should only, you know, personally, when I should be paying attention only Bitcoin, it still took a while. I, I like your analogy of the uh, you're not the class of 2017. You were a freshman in 2017. I like that. And um, you're, you're right. You know, come 2021, uh, that was really when I f really started working in Bitcoin and, and really mining Bitcoin. And what I mean by that is I went through the shitcoin phase and then I became a co-founder of a startup with some other guys who knew how to raise money. The reason I, I did that is I didn't know how to raise money and I, I needed to raise capital if I wanted to mine at a larger scale. Uh, but their focus uh, was to have an eventual exit from that company. So they were very much thinking in dollars. I didn't really think that was a problem at the beginning because I was like, well, we'll get to mine Bitcoin and there'll be Bitcoin and you know I'm going to have equity and I can take my equity payments in Bitcoin. So I achieved my goal and it doesn't really matter you know, if we have an exit later and I get a lot of dollars bonus, I'll buy some more Bitcoin. And, and that wasn't the way it really worked at, at all. I got a hard lesson on what happens when you get the wrong people on your cap table. And, and uh, we, they were trying to steer us back to mining Ethereum, you know. <laughs> so I left them. And in 2021 is, is when I was doing the stuff in Wyoming, you know, on the oil well. Now, that was much smaller, uh, but it was with, you know, private investors and it was Bitcoin only. And it was the first time really uh, that I was only mining Bitcoin and I could do it in any way that I thought was appropriate. You know, I could mine to the pool that I want. I could, you know, cover my energy cost in the, the way that I wanted, you know, and all of that. Um, so you're right. I think it takes, I think the, you know, sort of the high school or the college analogy is a good one. It, even when you sort of figure it out, it takes a few years, you know, for you to really come into it and understand what you're doing. And I, and I still don't, to be clear, I, I, I don't know everything about this. I still feel like I don't understand it at all in many ways, you know, <laughs> but, but I, but I know that I, I know enough to know that I should only be doing Bitcoin stuff. <laughs> hey, that's the, that's most of the battle right there. Cause I'm, I'm right there with you. Right. And that's why, that's why I'm out here in Miami, right. Trying to learn, trying to fellowship, uh, with others in the space. And, uh, you know, if and when you ever do step out into the conference world, uh, I very much look forward to connecting with you there or just uh, if it happens sometime organically before then, because uh, this was this was really cool. And uh, I, you know, I'd love to, to come talk shop again. Uh, so let's figure it out. 
Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I, I'm not against conferences. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer. Um, I'm not African American, um, but I, I can, to a certain, I'm sure, limited extent, uh, understand your skeptical worldview. Uh, Gen Xers, in general, I think, um, um, sort of learned young that you know the anything the government's saying they're doing to help you is is probably not actually helping you. Um, you know, so I really connect with that part of your, you know, your story. Um, so it's just something I, I haven't done uh, because I've always uh, kind of been a NIM and, you know, e- even mining, um, you know, I, as a public um, owner of a company, you know, that, that was trying to go public and, and doing those things. I, I even felt a bit uncomfortable with that process, you know, and we weren't doing anything wrong, you know, like we're reporting everything, you know, we're totally compliant it just felt uh, like exposure. And that's something that I'm just personally dealing with. But I think um, I wasn't able to go to Miami, uh, but I'm thinking I am going to make the pilgrimage down to Bitbox Boom. I know it's smaller, uh, but I hear great things about that conference and and the kind of people. I would say if you were going to start, like if I were picking a, a conference starting, particularly with what you shared with kind of like your background and how you approach, the space that that would be the conference that I would suggest. I actually wouldn't suggest Miami to start. Yeah, and then and then this year, uh, I guess since you're there, uh, uh, maybe a man on the ground report. I know a lot of people uh, didn't want to go this year uh, because of the the NFT thing um, that was yeah. that was done. And then and they, they're they, all here. They can play <laughs> Twitter and they're here with everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a. Uh, I'm not that um, hard-edged. The way I look at it now is, um, you know, I wish you wouldn't do that because I think you're going to get wrecked and it's a waste of your time. Uh, but I certainly don't think um, it's my job to tell people what they should and shouldn't do with their money or their time. I don't want people to tell me, you know, what I should or shouldn't do. Uh, but you you hate to see it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, um, I, I definitely can already think of a couple guys um, – guys and gals even that, um, you know, if they're, I'll mention it to them and if they're amenable, um, put you guys in touch. And I think they would, they would also be really interesting people to, to hear their stories. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, the listeners will decide, you know, uh, people will either like this or they won't. If people like it, I'll keep doing it. And, uh, yeah, I would love to, you know, be able to to give a platform to people who otherwise maybe aren't going to have their their stories heard, you know, because they're not uh, whatever you want to call it, influencers or the the really known people, yeah. who, you know, who've been in the space. And uh, you know, I'm glad I, we I I'm glad we have all that. Point. You know, Marty Bent basically orange pilled me, even though I've never met the guy. <laughs> you know, um, I'm glad we have all that. But I think hearing hearing the stories of whatever word you want to put on it, uh, you know, ordinary people. You know, I think that. Yeah there are lessons there that are equally as important. I think that's one of the ways this hopefully starts to, to grow and scale, right? Like, I don't, I don't know where, you know, this particular conversation goes, but I think as, as people hear, like the benefit of, of sharing your story and participating in the conversation is that you never know who is going to hear some something of themselves or of their own experiences or of their own challenges reflected in your story in a way that brings them closer to this topic. 
And when I think about it, again, another insight just from this conversation, that's a lot of what the orange pill process is, right? Like I would say the book that I credit for orange pilling me was um, <clears throat> was uh, Jason Williams, Bitcoin Hard Money You Can't Fuck With. <laughs> because he yeah. approached it, in my opinion, from a very um, very social and political case, but in layman's terms. Um, and it was just some it was this weird instance where I felt like someone was speaking my language um, and I could also gleam like some insights from just the way he alluded to certain certain things that like, you know, some of the ways and places he might have traveled or some of the, the ways or habits of mine that connected to things that I had seen or, or things that I experienced myself. And, you know, from there, you just, you, you know, no one knows how, how deep the rabbit hole goes, right? Yeah, so. I, I think uh, the, the reason I call this Bitcoin alchemy, and, you know, that's my uh, domain that I'm using for my NIT5 on Noster, and it's what I'm going to call the podcast uh, I initially, yeah. I initially chose that because, you know, just the idea, you know, you're taking energy and, you, and you're turning it into Bitcoin. Um, but then I was reading about, um, you know, alchemy and the alchemist and, you know, sort of these early attempts at, at science, but there's like that sort of, uh, you know, woo woo supernatural uh, component to it, mm-hmm. you know, it, which, which is just, you know, attractive to me personally, just kind of the way I'm wired and, and, and what I find interesting, but I've come to think of it as, as much more than that. Like I was looking at this project, um, where we're trying to use uh, landfill, you know, waste methane. So same, same thing as an oil well, you know, you just, the methane's coming up out of the ground from the decomposing organic materials. Uh, but then I thought, you know, it's okay. So you're literally, you're taking trash, and you're turning it into Bitcoin, you know, and that's in a way kind of similar to like the alchemists. They're they're trying to take lead and turn it into gold because they're so uh, similar, you know, like on a chemical level yeah. and yet so different, <laughs> you know. And one is yeah. uh, humans have decided is is rare and value valuable and useful, and the other we've decided is is useful, but not nearly as rare or as valuable. Um, but you know, you can turn your your time into Bitcoin. You know, and the alchemist, uh, you know, the word is you transmute it, you know, you're, you know, sending it through some sort of a process and you're turning something, you know, into another substance, you know, and I, ultimately that comes down to your time, you know, so whether I'm mining Bitcoin or I'm, you know, I'm working a fiat job and and I'm dollar cost averaging or, uh, you know, I'm selling things and, and getting dollars and then taking those dollars or maybe I'm selling things directly for Bitcoin, when it comes right down to it, you're, you're just exchanging your time uh, for Bitcoin or, or you're transmuting your time, you know, into Bitcoin. And that's, t- uh, so, go ahead. Oh, no, well, I want you to finish because I'm having, I'm having one final thought. Uh, that, was, that was basically it. It's just, um, I th- I've come to think of it as a lot more than mining uh, because certainly most people who use Bitcoin, even if they have it, they're not mining it, uh, not directly anyway. Yeah. Uh, you know, just absolutely not. I, I'd want to learn. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, it's fun. Uh, it's the craziest thing I've, I've ever worked on. And, you know, I thought I knew how data centers work, but not, not until you've worked in a Bitcoin data center. <laughs> but, uh, what is your, uh, you what read, is your, your other thought? Have you read Shellos? Yeah. Have you read Shellos Alchemist? The Alchemist? Yeah, I have. And that, uh, excellent. Yeah. It's, uh, one of my favorite books. 
Yeah, it's a great book. Um, I can't remember. I, I listened to a podcast where someone recommended it. I can't remember who said it now. Uh, but yeah, it's, um, yeah, t- totally sort of lines. I read it after, uh, you know, like I thought of the, the Bitcoin alchemy idea and concept, but that book uh, is a good book. It's one of those books where uh, people say things like, um, uh, recommend a book to me and I'll tell you how it's about Bitcoin. <laughs> and that, yeah. that book, yeah. uh, it may not say the word Bitcoin, but it's definitely about Bitcoin. What, what I think is so interesting about the concept of alchemy, and I'm not sure if this is a concept that I'm having or that I read somewhere in the past days because I've been doing a lot of reading, but like the, the, you know, alchemy as the precursor to the hard sciences, particularly the science of chemistry and all of the discovery that has come out of that science, right? The, the actual benefit of the process of alchemy is the discovery, not actually, you know, not actually achieving the goal because if the alchemist is able to turn lead into gold, all they do is they devalue gold. And so the best that the alchemists can hope for is that through their process of discovery, they actually discover something better than gold. But in that discovery, it's not going to be something that they can create out of nothingness, but it's going to be something that has superior properties, but also superior constraints. A quote that, um, I, that and, I, I love is... Um, that the greatest discovery, the greatest discoveries uh, in the history of humanity haven't been preceded by Eureka, uh, but by that's weird. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, you find you find something you weren't looking for, and sometimes that turns out to be the best thing. Yeah, I love it. Hey, well, that's what I got. All uh, right, thank you, man. Yeah, we should. We're a bit over an hour here. We should probably wrap it up. Um, well, Michael, thank yep. you, you know, for coming on and, and being brave enough to, to be the first person. And um, I think we did, we did a good job, but I guess we'll, we'll find out if people listen to it or not. <laughs> well, we'll let the people decide. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, this was great. You're welcome. Yeah, yeah if you run into any fellow travelers down there, send them my way. Will do. All right. Talk All to right. you later. Take care. Yep. Yeah.